Welcome to the Cooling Water Podcast, brought to you by Selenis, providing solutions to enhance your expertise and drive customer value. Today's podcast is presented by Joe Ordonez and Mike Bloomley and details the ClearPoint overview, including information on chemistry, solutions, and the OnGuard 3B. So welcome to the uh, ClearPoint session two. Today we're going to go over some basics when it comes to um, not only biological, but also the OnGuard 3B and the ClearPoint technologies. Um, so we're going to begin with the cooling water triangle, which many of you have likely seen before. Um, here in the cooling water triangle, you see that what we normally have is corrosion, deposition, and microbiological fouling. And when we have one, we likely will have the other ones following suit. And so here you see that there are arrows going from one to the other. So for instance, if you have corrosion on a pipe, you will have corrosion products that have created a deposit on the surface of the piping. And because of that, you may have under deposit corrosion as your corrosion inhibitors can't make it to the surface to protect the metal. And conversely, if you have microbiological growth on the surface of a pipe, um, you would have growth sites um, for that area to not only entrap particles that are floating around in the water, so you might get um, a sticky gelatinous layer that becomes not only the deposit made up of microbiological fouling, but also other particulate and iron and other uh, ions that are going to get trapped in there, as well as you might have corrosion from the metabolic processes that these microbiological organisms create. So for instance, at sulfate reducing bacteria, you might actually get um, the creation of a, a pit at the bottom or the surface of the pipe because of the sulfuric acid that they are uh, creating as part of the metabolic processes. So again, we're going to focus today on microbiological fouling, um, as that is as what we're going to focus with with ClearPoint. So, you know, when we look at a cooling system, there are going to be very many negative effects of biofouling in the cooling water system. Not only would you have mechanical issues such as blocking of piping or heat exchangers and cooling tower uh, packages that might have a living or a dead biomass. You know, you might have a fill that gets very heavy and laden with biomass, but you're also going to have a loss of heat transfer due to the buildup of this biological layer. Biomass by its nature is primarily water and because of that can be very insulating and create a problem for heat transfer. And so we'll see later in some of the graphics that as you see here to the right that scales can be insulating but that a biomass can be even much more so insulating and create a problem at a very low level of, of activity if you would. We also can have a loss of cooling tower performance. The key in a cooling tower is to have an exchange of air and water as that water flows down through the cooling tower fill or on the splash fill, primarily cooling tower heavy, high efficiency fill fill, you're wanting an interaction of the air and the water to allow that evaporative uh, effect and the cooling. And if you have biomass uh, there, it will affect the way the water is flowing as well as trap other particles and lead to a, a disturbance in the way that the uh, interaction is happening on the surface of that fill. Also, you can have microbiologically induced corrosion, as we talked about earlier, on your piping. And you can have a mechanical destruction of cooling towers. So if that fill gets heavy enough, you could get to the point where the fill would drop 
um, and now you have some error, some issues with the cooling uh, tower and having to come down to do some repairs and such. And then also, you know, you get again loss of the quality of directly cooled products. So perhaps you would not be able to get as much of a yield from your heat exchanger um, if you're not able to reach a certain temperature, or you would have to cut down on rates or uh, you know, even cut production back if you cannot get to the point where you're needing to. And lastly, there are hygienic risks from uh, having pathogenic organisms that may be released due to the biofilms. We know that, for instance, Legionella is a bug or a, a microorganism that lives in the biomass. Um, so if we have a biological loading that's high, we could potentially um, induce some, some problems with those people who are susceptible and have immune systems that are compromised. So really we need a way to really detect and control biofilm. And we know that about 20% loss or 20% of the corrosion estimated in most systems comes from microbes. And that biofilm can be four times as insulating as a mineral scale. And you all have probably seen that a, the scotch tape at 20 micrometer, micrometers or um, less than 20 micrometers would be about a 7% loss of heat transfer. And what that means is even the film itself or the glue on the scotch tape would be enough to create a disturbance in your heat transfer. But the greater that biofilm, the more detrimental it will be to your heat transfer altogether. So here we have, we're going to see an OnGuard 3B uh, target. And this one here, for instance, is showing you a thick layer of slime. And in fact, on this picture, I believe this is about a 500 micron thick layer of slime. And we're going to show you how this can lead to well over 10% of a heat, tra heat transfer efficiency loss. In the next picture, right here, you can see that some of that slime has been wiped away. But really, it's not doing a very good job of cleaning it if you just wipe it away. You really have to go through more aggressive chemical cleaning to get down to the base metal. But just mechanically cleaning it by wiping it away will still leave some of that matrix exposed, and it will promote more, um, more bacterial growth in the end. So you know, we wonder, how does this form? So we have to look at the market impact of of this on biorefining, for instance. So most of our ethanol producers and operators, many have experienced bottlenecks due to the lack of cooling in the summer months. You know, and many of them have seen as much as five, 10, even 20%, right? Now, during the summer months, we have a location that has said, you know, it's difficult for them to keep up with cooling and they often see a reduction in the amount of ethanol that they're able to produce. And the economic impact can be really very large. Uh, the problem seems to be accepted as the norm in the industry, but really it is accept addressable, but it only with some significant investments. So here you'll see that there's some normal uh, usage as far as production of your ethanol, um, but also some losses in there. So if you were to have a 10% production loss and a daily production loss due to that cooling gap, you would be looking at about lost revenue of $22,000 per day, just based on that small amount of biofilm, if you would. And if you look at the number of hot days in the summer that this particular plant could not keep up, and when I say they couldn't keep up, it meant that they had to run chillers in excess of their cooling tower 
to be able to keep up with production. Then their total revenue missed uh, opportunity there would have been about $1.7 million. So it really is a very large number. And what we're trying to show our customers is that, you know, just by looking and monitoring at the biofilm, um, what is happening in the system, we can effectively help them to minimize these losses. So, you know, it, we ask our customers, is this considered normal at your plant? And unfortunately, a lot of them will say, yes, I do have to run the chiller during the summer months. So some of the typical things that we've heard, even when we ask about this, is, you know, the design of the cooling system is way too small for the plant capacity. In many instances, a lot of these facilities have added cooling capacity or heat exchangers with not increasing the cooling tower and just keeping the design as it was before or not adding any pumps. Um, so a lot of times the design is the issue there. Also, let me get going. Other improvements in the plant may have accelerated through uh, throughput beyond cooling capacity. Again, they might have added more ethanol production without increasing any of the, uh, the, the actual cooling capacity. In the heat of the summer, the cooling towers just cannot keep up, and even the chillers that they installed are having trouble keeping up with production. The plate and frame heat exchangers that they've installed in many instances are undersized, and instead of going in there and looking at the design from the inception and saying, okay, this is what we're going to need down the road if we have any expansions, it's not something that's normally done in this industry. And lastly, how heat exchangers may be filed on the process side as well, so that may really exacerbate the, the issue. And if you end up with heat exchangers filed on the cooling side, then that's going to be typically um, another problem for them as well. And uh, many times they don't believe that they have any issues on the cooling side because they don't realize that they have biofilm problems. Um, so again, one of the things that we look at is, you know, we may, may consider design or mechanical issues, and that's usually the first response, right? There's some kind of capital investment that will need to take place, whether it be the adding of chillers, cooling tower cells, or more plates to their uh, plate and frame heat exchangers. But on the maintenance side, we need to make sure that they're looking at their increasing clean in place type operations and they're opening and cleaning as they have time. And they have to remember that no, not everything is fine just because it looks fine. They should be monitoring to make sure that there is no issue in the cooling system. So that's the big premise here. We want to make sure that our customers are educated to that. And how do they know everything is fine? Well, they say, you know, my chemical levels are good in the cooling tower, conductivity is in range. My tower is still standing. It has not collapsed. Nothing is plugged up in the cooling water system. And if I inspect a plate and feed and heat exchanger, it seems to be clean on the cooling water side. But what they don't see is what really is harming them. And they're really just concerned with what's on the process side. And normally that can get pretty dirty. But, and cleaning can get them back to where they were before, or so they think. But if we were able to go in there and show them that there is biofilm growth, then you know, we have the right tools to evaluate the problem and perhaps alleviate some of those operational issues for them. So again, this is what a plate and frame might look like um, you know, on, the, on, this, on the cooling water side, even though they don't realize that it is happening. And they're really just concerned with the process side. So now let's look at market impact on the pulp and paper industry. Most of the mills that we treat will co-generate some power so you might have either fouling on um, the turbine condenser, right? So they either have to buy more power 
or spend more fuel to generate that same amount of power. And that can be very costly. So when we look at this scenario, and this is loss of two inches of vacuum, if you would, here you can see that if we took all the information for that condenser, that surface condenser, and plugged in the loss in pressure here in the very middle of two inches of mercury, then we can calculate that their megawatt lossages, there's some, some lost megawatts at about 0.6 megawatts per hour, and based on a cost of $78 per megawatt, the daily cost can be upwards of about $1,000, and then also annually about 382000 And what that means is we have to purchase or pay that much more to create our power um, that we're purchasing there. So we have to pay that much more for the power, if you would. In the other scenario here, right, we're looking at we either make more steam, right? So we're needing to make more steam to be able to keep up. And again, here you can see that that two inches in loss of vacuum will translate upwards of, and forgive me, these numbers are very small, $343,000. So extra fuel must be purchased to create that more steam. So really, the, when you look at the overall in the power pulp and paper industry on water on utilities, the more that you have biofouling in the mill supply system, it's going to increase corrosion. So for instance, at Georgia Pacific, MIC is costing the, them millions, millions of dollars per year. 20% of the corrosion is caused by microbiologically induced corrosion there. They're also having to overuse strong oxidizing biocides to control biofilm and increase system ORP. Now, when we increase ORP by adding more and more of a sodium hypochlorite or some kind of an oxidizer, with it goes the increase in corrosion. And because of that, those corrosion products and metal oxides increase the pulp bleaching mill costs by catalyzing the decomposition of bleaching chemicals. So when you look at that, it can be hundreds of thousand dollars a year in that increased cost. So you can see that the impact to all of these industries is pretty significant. But another one I want to show you is something related to HPI, and we'll get there in just a sec. So biofouling of the mill supply also seeds and re-inoculates the white water systems with microorganisms that can cause holes, dirt counts, and breaks on the pulp and paper machines. So one of the things, of course, is if we are impacting the quality of that paper, we're going to cost the mill quite a bit of money. So here you can see that a cost of hole in paper can be tens of thousand dollars for each outbreak that we have. The cost of dirt counts downgrade the production before, and then after the high dirt count can be, again, tens of thousands of dollars, and the breaks. So every time that there is an issue not only in the mill supply when it comes to microbiological control, it will also increase the microbiological costs and the lost opportunity cost, if you would, of that paper production. So before I go on, are there any questions? Okay. So now let's look at the market impact on the hydrocarbon processing industry, or HPI. When we look at biofouling, again, these can be, be the result of the fact that we have nutrients in the water. So perhaps you have a hydrocarbon leak, some kind of an oil or grease, or even a hydrocarbon from the process. They can be really difficult to identify and isolate. I mean, we can go out there and look for them with an ORP meter or some kind of a, uh, 
um, either an El Paso test or other things. But even so, it can be very difficult to isolate to one certain heat exchanger or an area. And immediately, because you have this extra food source in the water, you'll see an increase in bacterial growth that will give you even more of a biofilm growth. And with that, the loss of heat transfer and under deposit corrosion from these microbiological organisms. And because our contingency plans, whenever we have a hydrocarbon leak, do not include increasing the oxidizer, but include instead adding some kind of an oil and grease dispersant or a biopenetrant, as well as a non-oxidizing biocide, the cost of that treatment for microbiological uh, will go really much higher. And it can be in the order of thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars a day. Not only that, we can have lost production and repair costs that will be needed to replace these heat exchangers. And if you know how a refinery operates, um, to get them to shut down because there is a problem, um, they're not very happy with us when that happens and the customer will very much do what they can to limp along until the next event. Also environmentally, the leaks cannot be ignored. They have to be dealt with. This is something that is reportable. Um, and we estimate that there's $3.7 billion annually related to the cost of corrosion at our U.S. refineries. So when we look at the cost, again, the production losses from biofouling on heat exchangers can be anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 per day during the hottest of summer months. And the biofilm reduces cooling tower efficiency significantly. You'll see here there's a case study that you can download, um, and it tells about how we were able to drop the supply water temperature at one of the refineries in the summer months by reducing the cooling tower biofouling. So in this particular instance, they were able to add the biopenetrant to the system as well as a non-oxidizing biosign regime, and with that, able to gain back some of the approach temperature on the cooling tower. Uh, with that, brought quite a bit of efficiency. So again, that case history is available for you to take a look at. So let's move into the part of our ClearPoint uh, biofilm detection and control discussion. So I'll pause here. Any questions? You can use your chat window or break in with a comment if you like. Joe, that, that, this is Steve Geisky. That, that case study that was at a still that was at a refinery like a marathon. Yes, sir. It was a U.S. refinery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I'll, I'll ask some questions later on then because sure. I'm having. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Absolutely, and it is available on Acumen, by the way. Um, and I think it might even be on the ClearPoint uh, site that is in Insight, by, by the way, so just so that you know. But we can talk about that later. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at ClearPoint. And you might have seen this presentation before, but we're going to go back over what we introduced when it comes to ClearPoint. So, again, the invisible threat is that a biofilm is there, right? We really cannot see it many times with the naked eye, but it can lead to these productivity and higher energy costs and premature repairs and replacement of equipment. And you might not even be aware of the root cause of why this is happening. And all of this is going to have a noticeable effect on the bottom line for the customer because either repair costs or some kind of a, a downgrade of production, they're going to see the, the impact of it. So we know again that 20% or more of all corrosion is related to a biofilm. Contributors of, of the biofilm then create microbiologically induced corrosion issues. And because of this, that also, that slime layer that is created by a film, by a biofilm 
can trap other particulates. So it might trap other phalanx. And because of that, now the biofilm begins to grow, not only because of the microbiological organisms, because you're trapping more and more material. So over the course of time, you can get to the point where you have uh, loss of heat transfer, significant loss of heat transfer. You can plug up lines to like your samples or to your analyzers and equipment that is monitoring. Um, and of course you can have damage to the equipment itself like the heat exchangers. Um, so this is again something that we need to stress to our customers. And biofilm can be very wasteful. You know, we know that a biofilm is much more insulating than a scale can be. And we know that at this point, we can measure when it begins to grow somewhere in the order of 10 microns. But when you get to 20 microns, which is less than the thickness of scotch tape, we know that we have a loss of approximately 7% of that heat transfer. And so one of the things to do is to make sure that we are monitoring our biofilm and doing our due diligence by applying the best practice uh, when it comes to our chemistry to minimize that biofilm. So here again, 20 microns gives you less than 7% heat transfer. And then again, that probably is the thickness of the glue on the scotch tape, because I believe that scotch tape is somewhere in the order of 50 microns. And biofilm can be very elusive. You know, as far as measuring, it's very difficult to see. If we do a test of the water with our dip slides or our cultures or ATP, we're measuring what's planktonic or floating around in the water. But the truth is that that's likely only about 10% of the bug populations that we have in a cooling system. 90% of the bugs live in a biofilm. And if you're measuring them in the planktonic phase, then that means you've got a pretty healthy biofilm by that point. The other thing is that if you're using oxidizers, they may not necessarily penetrate a biofilm. So we need to make sure that we're getting in there and, and doing our due diligence, as I said, with our best practices. And lastly, the regulations make it difficult, right? Sometimes we're limited by the type of biocide options we have. And until now, there really had been no reliable and unified way to combat the threat posed by biofilm. But you know, now we have ClearPoint. So with ClearPoint, it's the only comprehensive safeguard we have against a biofilm film uh, threat. So we've developed the fact that we can come in with ClearPoint, and this is a program that includes not only the equipment for monitoring, but also our chemistry and our people, the service that we, we uh, provide to our customers. And here you see one of our, uh, our, our people on the call today uh, looking at one of the OnGuard 3B analyzers. And it's a technology, of course, that gives you a very, um, very repeatable and um, effective way of monitoring uh, the biofilm precisely. The OnGuard analyzer is an in-situ analyzer. It is a small unit, I would say, you know, not very large at all, and most of you have seen this unit. It's a plug-and-play, meaning that you can pretty much plumb it in very easily and it's ready to go. You don't need any other controllers or monitors. And it provides an ultrasonic uh, probe and meter to give you uh, an indication of what type of, of uh, phalanx you might have on the target surface. So there is a video, and I think most of you have seen this. I don't know if I can play it um, and you can watch, but let's go ahead and play. I will narrate here. 
So here you see the OnGuard 3B, and you have an ultrasonic pulse meter uh, that is sending over a signal to this stainless steel target. Now, as that stainless steel target becomes uh, fouled with any type of a, of a material, it will measure the presence of that foulant. And based on the way the signal returns, it will give you either uh, an indication of whether there is a hard scale, a soft organic fouling, or some kind of a biofilm. So you might see oil and grease, hard scale, or again, a biofilm. So the analyzer, again, will give you that biofilm thickness and the temperature. It's going to measure the temperature not only at the target, but also the bulk water temperature and a temperature internal to the, uh, the housing of that target. And based on those measurements, we can then build an algorithm that gives you um, what the indication is of what's happening. And in fact, we've seen that when you look at the difference in the target uh, temperature as well as what's inside of that actual mechanism, which we call delta T ISO, you might see that number begin to climb about a day or so before we begin to see even a biofilm thickness detectable. So it's a great is way. That the, mm -hmm. is, that the, is that Delta ISO DT? Right, Delta T ISO, right. Yep. And if you were to look at a chart, you'll see some later, the Delta T ISO is usually beginning to take off anywhere from you know about half a day to, to a day in advance of where you start to see the true indication of any biofilm. Okay. So okay. it'll see that. It depends on the retention time of the system. Right. So, okay. you know, the probe was developed, and one of the things that we did was we went to some third parties and made sure that we um, we verified, right, with their analysis that we were we were seeing something that was truly uh, repeatable and that they were um, in, you know, in the same regime as we were, if you would. So. We went to a U.S.-based biofilm research institute and also a Germany-based one. Um, and here you can see that the measurements with the OnGuard 3B were pretty much in sync with what they were seeing with their measurements. And I believe that I cannot see them very clearly, but the pictures show you uh, the indication of, you know, a clean target on the left going to where you're beginning to get some, some biofilm growth and then finally have a fully established biofilm. And you can see that, again, there their indication is, is tracking pretty nicely with ours. Um, as well as here is the thickness from the thickness readings that were 100% match with the readings of the 3B, and this is coming out of the lab from Germany. Um, again, you see that, you know, again, we're pretty much correlating with what they're doing there. So when it comes to our chemistry, we have not only our biosperse line of our, our uh, microbiological uh, agents, if you would, but we also have a Performax line and Generox. And the reason this is important is that when you look at the best practice, not only do we have to make sure that we're taking care of corrosion and deposition, which would be our Performax line, but also on the microbiological side. And the thing with the microbiological best practice is that we must be using um, as many of the different components, if you would, of our oxidizing, non-oxidizing, and biopenetrant program. And the reason that you want to do that is, if you were to use an oxidizing biocide alone, you likely will not be able to penetrate a biofilm. But by the addition of a biopenetrant, which can break those bonds that these 
microorganisms have created to stick together, if you would, and, and open up the organisms as well as the biofilm, we can then effectively uh, use less of the oxidizer to get in there and, and make an impact, but also bring in a non-oxidizing biocide, which might have the purpose of either lysing a cell or opening up a cell so that the cell dies, or another mechanism where we are affecting their metabolism. Either the, the, the structure cannot uh, metabolize food or nutrients, or they cannot reproduce, or we affect their respiration. Um, so somehow or another, we need to get in there and give them our best practice approach, which is, again, the use of an oxidizing biocide, a non-oxidizing biocide on an infrequent basis, but as needed, and a biopenetrant also on, a, on an intermittent basis. And then our dispersants to make sure that any of those other particulates and solids are not going to be affecting um, the addition to that biofilm. We'll talk about, I believe, oxidizing biocides in a little bit more detail um, in this presentation. So here is, again, that demonstration about um, the probe and how it works. I believe it's the same video, so I won't go through it. But again, it's going to, oh, is this? Let's see. So this is, again, we get a signal. It gives you the indication there. You have N1 thickness, which would be scale. N2 is more oil and greases. And N3 would be your indication of what is happening with a biofilm. As, as you use a biopenetrant, it can help to effectively break and, and slough off, if you will, and open up that biofilm so that you could reduce the thickness. So we can use our OnGuard 3B as a way not only to predict what's happening, but also to help us to effectively add our chemistries as needed to be able to control that biofilm. So we have that capability as well with the analyzer. Um, when it comes to our service, right, we talk about the fact that we have uh, our experts who analyze that solution. We have online real-time monitoring, which you saw in the dashboard just before in that video. And we also have regular Legionella testing if it's asked for. And we have other clink water consultations that can be added to our service. So there are a lot of alternatives for us to provide that comprehensive and safeguard uh, solution against that biofilm threat, if you will. So before I go on, are there any questions? Okay. So in summary, you know, it's how we bring everything together. It's our chemistry, our equipment, and that long-term real-time monitoring and solutions and those people who are putting you know their their input and eyes on the system to make ensure that we have that one fell approach if you would so there is a knowledge check here and i'm going to ask you to take your annotation tools and use either your check mark there's a stamp for an x or a check mark something like what i've done there right and can you tell me okay so it says tell me how many elements are utilized here we go. There are your options. Oops, I just gave you the answer. <laughs> Is it the OnGuard 3B alone? Is it the OnGuard 3B plus ISO or a comprehensive microbiocidal program and then superior service? And you all know that it's three because I just gave you that answer. So thank you all so much for that. Very good. Yes, you are correct. Good. Everyone's awake and listening. Thank you. And so we know that the program brings everything together, right? Not only our new technology with the new earliest and most accurate detection through the 3B, 
but also the most precise delivery of the correct chemistry and the most reliable services that we have to offer in our real-time monitoring and also in our service. So let's talk about the chemical best practice for our microbiocidal control program. Excuse me, I can't speak anymore. Um, when we talk about it, again, we talked about the use of the three-pronged approach, using an oxidizer, a non-oxidizer, and a biopenetrant. And again, we want to do that because most of our cooling systems are going to be in that great temperature for growth of microorganisms, anywhere between 68 degrees Fahrenheit and about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. You're going to see that that's really a great area where microorganisms wants to, want to proliferate. We also have a great amount of nutrients in a cooling system. You know, by the sheer nature of the way the cooling tower operates, we're scrubbing all kinds of uh, nutrients out of the air and then whatever we might have as part of the process. And once in the system, these microorganisms can really proliferate very quickly. And, you know, if you don't um, take a hold of the microorganisms quickly, then we get to a point where we're going to create some problems. Yes, sir. Screen is locked up. Okay, Steve. I am at cooling control program right now. So if we were to frame this um, problem numerically, right, a very small level of microbial con con contamination, less than 100 CFUs per milliliter, which easily meets the EPA's drinking water standard of 500 CFUs per milliliter, duplicating every hour would lead to about 1.7 billion CFUs per milliliter in one day. So again, if we started with 100 CFUs per milliliter, within 24 hours, we could be at 1.7 CFUs per milliliter, per milliliter, excuse me, very quickly in one day. So let's talk about the oxidizing biocides that we have in our arsenal, if you would. Oxidizing biocides work by lysing the cell or damaging the cell membrane. So essentially like us as humans going out to the beach and getting a major sunburn and think of how, how it can be very damaging to our skin, right? It's, they have a broad spectrum of effectiveness, meaning they can go after different organisms in a cooling systems, but they don't generally penetrate that biofilm or those slime layers. Um, and they, the, the residual in the water does not mean that there will be no microorganisms on the surface. When you measure a free chlorine residual or a total chlorine residual in the water that is the bulk water of the cooling system, we're again only measuring about 10% of those bugs and that organism has been exhausting that amount of, of sodium hypochlorite or whatever you're putting into the system, but we're not necessarily seeing what is protected under a biofilm. And misapplication can really lead to ineffectiveness. So if we're not doing the right type of biocide for the, the maybe the tower pH or what we're doing in the system, it can absolutely lead to some ineffective means there. So when we look at our, our oxidizing biocides and the actives, we have sodium hypochlorite or bleach. We have activated chlorine and bromine, so or our stabilized bromine, bromine uh, so there here you see NaOBr or NaOCl. Yes, I lost signal. Oh, Fabio, um, I'm sorry about that. We will have this recorded, so you'll be able to go back in and take a look at it. Um, 
So we also have chlorine dioxide, which is something that can be used in a cooling system. Um, you know, the thing with sodium hypochlorite is it's very inexpensive. Our activated chlorine or bromine or stabilized bromine, bromine products can be a little bit more expensive. Um, the thing with chlorine dioxide is that it is something that has to be generated on site and likely is not going to persist in a cooling system very much. Um, in fact, it will off-gas and by the time it comes back to the cooling tower um, and in that system, it will be off-gassed and lost. Then you have chloramine, chloramines, which are, you know, again, you see here, we have our chlorine and bromine releasers, the, the BM, VCMDH, those usually in the form of a powder or a pellet or a puck. You can use hydrogen peroxide and paracetic acid. So these are the different types of biocides that are available to us as oxidizers. Now, when we talk about halogen-based technologies and we look at bromine versus chlorine, bromine will have a better performance under alkaline conditions. So you can see here, for instance, at a pH of 8.7, by that time, most of our chlorine or HOCl, which is the killing agent, has been exhausted. Less than 20% is available for use, which means we have to use a lot more of that sodium hypochlorite or that bleach to be able to get an effective kill. But yet, the bromine has dissociated at less of a rate. That would be the blue line. And you can see that we might still have somewhere in the order of 45 to 50% active of that HOBR um, so that you would still have a better effectiveness at alkaline conditions. When we talk about our halomine technologies, we have things like our bromide-activated chloramine, which is our XD3899. We have the nitrogen-activated chloramine, which would be our Biosperse uh, CX3195, I believe. Um, and then with chloramine as well. So here you have a dedicated skid where you're producing this chloramine on site and targeting um, a specific area or cooling system where you're going to be feeding it. These are pH independent um, and they tend to have a lower coercivity in the sense that when you're using a sodium hypochlorite, you're running in an ORP range of about 500 to 600 uh, millivolts. Whereas with a haloamine, you might be in the, somewhere in the order of 325 to 350 or thereabouts on your ORP. And so you're, it's less selective towards that yellow metal and your yellow metal be, will be greatly protected when you go to a haloamine. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Mike. <laughs> so let's do a knowledge check again. Is sodium hypochlorite the best oxidizing biocide? to use. You can use your check mark tool. I've got four options for you. So do you think that sodium hypochlorite is the best option, option for an oxidizing biocide? Right, okay. Good. So most of you are saying that the water chemistry, the regulations, economic decisions, everything's going to help dictate what the proper program selection is. And you're very right. Again, whatever the chemistry is, whatever the regulations are, we really need to look at what the best fit is. If you have the option to, to propose chloramine, then that's fine. That's something that is, is definitely available to us. But this is the correct answer. So you all were right spot on. See, we don't even have to do these knowledge checks. Everybody knows this stuff. So let's talk a little bit about non-oxidizing biocides now. 
So non-oxidizers, unlike the oxidizing biocides, are very selective in the way they kill microorganisms or they attack. They will either, as I said earlier, in, in, impact the metabolic um, processes, so they will not be able to, to breathe or to consume nutrients or to uh, do some type of reproductive process. They can also disrupt that cell wall and essentially explode that cell so that everything dies. But to be effective, we typically have to feed some higher concentrations um, with an oxidizer than we would with a non-oxidizing biocide. So microorganisms can also develop over time a resistance to the biocides. Um, so we have to be very careful to use alternating types of biocides um, so that we can effectively get in there and kill these organisms. So as I said, um, the efficacy is going to depend on the conditions as well, right? What is the pH of the system? How much contact time are we able to give to that biocide? And each biocide has its own spectrum of activity. Some are better for algae. Others are better for, you know, have a really good spectrum of, uh, of use across for, bio, for biological when it comes to um, microbes or fungi and yeast, etc. But it is a very good practice to alternate your non-oxidizing biocides or to go with one of our dual active biocides because, again, you're going to get a variety of mechanisms in those biocides. So when we look at them, again, here's some of the actual classes of mechanisms for the different ones. So when it comes to inhibiting uh, reproduction, you have isothiazoline. Uh, when we have enzyme inhibitors, it might be something like MBT, ISO, or Bronopol, BNPD. We have some that are surface active, meaning that, again, they will open up that cell uh, and everything pours out and it dies, something like QUAT, DGH, or THPS. And then we have those that are surface binding, or what we would talk about is maybe coating the surface of that cell so that nutrients cannot penetrate or it cannot uh, breathe. And again, that would be glutaraldehyde, DBNPA, and BNPD. Now, with these, these biocides, you'll see that there are several in this, um, this group of biocides that are actually in our dual active biocides. And here what you see is there's an increasing speed of action of kill based on the type of biocide that we're using, right? So DBNPA, for instance, can usually be put into a system and has a contact time that's very, very quick, somewhere in the order of if you're at least 20 minutes and it's already done its job. Um, so these are great additions to any biocidal program. Um, and when we talk about organic dispersants, we're talking about some type of a surfactant. There are different types. There are anionic, cationic, and non-ionic. Usually you can feed these at very low dosages, somewhere in the order of about 15 to 20 parts per million. They have very good efficacy. So they go in there and essentially break those bonds that are holding these bugs together, if you would, the sulfa bonds. Um, and by doing that, you can penetrate that biofilm very quick, effectively. And you can see that here on the left, you have a biofilm before it was treated, in the middle after the treatment with the dispersant, and lastly, after you put in a, an oxidizing microbiocide. So they really are very effective at helping to keep surfaces clean and allowing those biocides to penetrate the biofilm. Um, okay, let's, let's ask this. Uh, what amount of glutaraldehyde is needed 
to maintain complete microbiological control. Hmm. 50 ppm, that's a trick question. There are different concentrations depending on your geography. Common man, best practice is to implement a comprehensive program that utilizes a combination of oxidizing, periodic dosages, and non-oxidizers, and sometime intermittent application of dispersant. What do you think? Oh, it's come on, man, not common man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I say the third one. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I think that's the thing is, you know, glutaraldehyde can be used, but again, it can become bug food. It breaks down. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, it's not the only solution. The solution is to look at the best practice and really based on your system and the history of what your system likes to do and what operating parameters you have, that you pick the best approach. And I think the comprehensive approach is to go with that three-pronged program, if you would. So again, the elements of a strong program, you have an oxidizing biocide, traditional, right, strong oxidizers or even mild oxidizers, a non-oxidizing bio biocide program, as well as a dispersant. So something in conjunction with that biocide. That's gonna be the best practice approach. So let me just put you through one more. We just learned about the chemistry, right? What do you think the next topic of the Skype should be? So if you would be, give me some ideas of what the next Skype is that you want to learn about, or even type something in if you don't mind here. So we have the OnGuard 3B, 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 equipment module, focusing on the OnGuard 3B in service with an emphasis on OnGuard Online, and more about how surface-binding microbiocides work. So I've got the 3B, okay. Anybody else? So were there any questions? I guess we're at the pretty much almost at the end of our um, of our deal here. So are there any questions? 3B, okay. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah, Joe, I have a question. Yes, sir. This is, uh, uh, Mike knows about this. I have a 3B. I have a customer who's in disbelief. The 3B has done a very fantastic job of predicting uh, they will have biofilm. Mm-hmm. They do have biofilm. It's up to one millimeter. Uh, so not microns, millimeters. So one I'm at millimeter. one millimeter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the corrosion coupon rack, you can actually see the slime and the biomass coming out. Okay. And they still in disbelief that they have biofilm. Why? Yeah. I mean, so I got to put corrosion coupons in there, stainless steel, any uh -huh. mesh. But they, they, are, they believe we're an eight. I'm sorry? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Mike, I think that's Mike. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, uh, the next step is to do ATP. Okay. So, I mean, it, this is hilarious because I have a customer that I predicted they get biofilm. They got it. The cooling efficiency has gone seven degrees down, five degrees down on the chiller, and they called in Johnson Controls uh, saying it's the refrigerant. Oh, wow. So, uh, and, uh, I mean, I'm at a loss because you can physically see it. We took the corrosion coupon out. Slime came out, and they still in total disbelief that they have biofilm. Hmm. Okay, so Mike is typing. Let's hear Mike, can you chime in on that? You know, the thing is, I, you know, to me, why is it that they're, I can't unmute Mike, sorry. They, they still have trouble accepting the 3B. Uh, they still, which is amazing because the 3B has done a fantastic job. It's been predictive. Uh, I showed them, you know, the pitting index that you mm -hmm. told me about, uh, the mouse steel corrosion is going up, all the external indicators. So now my next step uh, is basically to bring out the whole range of manual testing to show, yes, the 3B is very effective. It is right. predictive. And 
and to make them a believer. So that's where I'm at right now in that particular account. And so with their heat exchangers, are they seeing, you said they saw a cooling efficiency increase of seven degrees, but they gave that to the refrigerant, right, is essentially what they did. Yeah. And I have to follow up. They, the guy came in yesterday from uh, Johnson Controls. I have to follow up on uh, Tuesday when I go mm -hmm. back to the site and uh, to see. Because I would say that would be, uh, you know, that would be probably to me right there. That's a pretty clear indicator that you're seeing some kind of an improvement. Were you able to do approach temperatures across their cooling tower and see anything there either? Or I didn't see anything there. I do monitor the temperature, Joe, and I also did. I was actually looking at their process to see the valve openings, uh -huh. and that, that came back inconclusive on the process, and this is a bio-refining plant. Ah, okay. Yeah, and we did, we did use yeah, the yeah, outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, this is Mike. I finally got off the mute. Uh -huh. Yeah, Joe, this is, uh, this is a bio-refinery. Bio this is Marysville Ethanol. Okay. And, um, yeah, Steve's, Steve's been doing a great job documenting things, and, and Steve, I think you're right. I think you just have to kind of go back to some of the old traditional mm -hmm. indirect offline methods and just try to complement the 3B data with as much other stuff that you can, biofilm coupons, ATP measurements, whatever, you know, with the understanding that these are, again, indirect methods. Right. But hopefully complementary to what the 3B is showing. And like you said, if you're already seeing slime and everything in you the mm -hmm. in the coupon rack, then you know it's there. If you take that 3B apart and look at the heater target, I mean, a millimeter of biofilm is it's some pretty, pretty significant, thick, nasty yeah. stuff. So, so yeah, I don't know. It's just a matter of trying to convince uh, the customer that it's present in the rest of their system. And then the next step is, and this is why you're having – uh, you're having heat transfer issues and just go through all the, the basic stuff with them. I wonder, would you be able to look at, so one of the things Sean says there is look at their um, biocide usage. Okay, he said, have you looked at that? Well, that hasn't changed. Okay. They, they use bleach. I mean, we did a slug feed of chlorine dioxide and with a biopenetrant, well, with juice per 739. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, it, I was restricted initially because the city, uh, I only had to go in at 2 ppm, which is nothing. Okay. And and but uh, but knowing now that the now we have data to show is that chlorine dioxide does dissipate after two hours. Okay. And that's what I predicted when I first went in. I can now recommend higher dosages to go on because that's the only thing we can go on with that that and DBMPA. Okay. So DBMPA can be used. Okay. Yeah, they they use that. And they got nothing also. Uh, that... They 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 tried using that. They didn't didn't have an impact. Nothing. Right. I would definitely do my whole. Um... You know, the biofilm monitoring with the sessile monitor, so not necessarily the mesh coupon, but the straight stainless coupon in that test kit from Aquaphoenix, right? Do you yeah, have that, that test kit? Yeah, I do. Does that matter if it's 304 or 316 stainless steel? It should steel? not. I mean, I think, I think a 304, either one will work for you. Stainless steel is what bugs like, so you should be fine with either one. You'll yeah, get more that, corrosion on the, on the 304, but, you know, even so. The other thing I would look at is their operating hours on their chillers. Right. So, are they having to run the chiller more often? No. So they, they, okay. Uh, and where they located in Michigan, they have so much excess cooling capacity. Ah, okay. So that's how they get away with it. Okay. Wow, they're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, they even admitted they opened up the end caps, and right. they told me they expected to see all this biofilm, and they did admit it in the lower flow sections. They they did have biofilm, but they said, Steve, in the higher areas, no biofilm, so we don't believe biofilm's an issue.
okay. So I mean, I, but uh, Mike's right. I got to bring out. I, I got. I just put in a whole stand there, and I have all the tests. I just got to get a luminometer for the ATP. Right. And uh, just just manually show them. But Mike's absolutely right. That's yeah. what I have to do. And the ATP. Are you going with one from Lumen Ultra, or are you going with the other ones? The 3M. Okay, the which, 3M. Okay. Yeah, is there is that okay? I mean, it works. Yeah, that's fine. There's also one by Lumen Ultra, but it's a lot more expensive. Um, so, you know, if you need some information on that, that one's something that Lumen Ultra is the name the name of the company, but they are more expensive. Okay. I think the 3M would work for your purposes, though. Yeah, but but the 3M even tests 3,000, 3,300 for the brand new luminometer that they have that just oh, came really? out. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they replaced the NG3. Yeah. Ah, yeah. okay. Well, then maybe price it just to sure. see how much the Lumen Ultra would be. Mm. Yeah, Joe, can I take over as sure. presenter for a second and just show? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, so Steve, I'm going to show the on-guard online data. Yeah, it's bad. And I've been, I've been documenting, okay. Joe, thank you, with the penny index, everything. I've done everything. So this is uh, Steve's account, and, and things look to be in pretty good control until late July. Right. And this is a case where you know, what Joe was talking about before, where the Delta Temp ISO started going up. And then later on, the um, biofilm thickness also started increasing. So, so things are starting to level off a bit, but you know they're leveling off at one millimeter. Wow. Of biofilm thickness. That's pretty significant, though. And we were able to pinpoint exactly what they did that caused that micro, you know, to cause the biofilm. So it's it's just amazing that uh, they but still don't accept it. it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, like you said, you're doing your due diligence going back to the methods. I think that's the best thing you can do right now. And then if you can get some DBNPA in there and show them that, hey, we slugged it. It looks like it's working. Um, and this is what you gain back, maybe either on how much they're producing or something. You know, There's got to be some mechanism that they're using to show what their production is, um, how it changes. Yeah. Well, hopefully they, uh, hopefully they did not have a positive response from Johnson Controls. Okay. Yeah, because they, they they blame the refrigerant is what they believe it, you know is what they think mm. it is. Okay. So uh, Joel Joel has some comments about okay. one of his accounts. They're having um, higher Legionella numbers. Um, he says they're using sinoxide. Uh, so I think this is a case where he's not currently using an on guard three B. Okay. Yet. Uh, but. But potentially could uh, and just sinoxide, nothing too. else, or what else yeah. is being used in the biocide program there? Yeah. So Joel, if you haven't uh, yet reached out to the the cooling water applications team, mm -hmm. then this might be. Uh... And the other thing I would consider, if it's just sinoxide, is this a system where we can actually add anything else to that system on treatment? But I see here it's aluminum quench. No other oxid can they be used though? You have none, but can they? Just bleach. Only hypo. Can they be used though? Yes. Okay, so this is a an instance where I might look at apparently if your Legionella numbers are going up, and remember that Legionella do not live necessarily free floaters. They're most more um, in the in the biofilm phase, if you would. So it's a matter of controlling that biofilm and perhaps we need to look at whether based on this process you can add the biopenetrant alone and then with a biopenetrant if you can put in a more targeted uh, biocide, a non-oxidizing biocide 
to be able to effectively get in there and break up the biofilm and penetrate it because bleach will not be able to. We are sold on no other biocide use and are happy with that extra is needed. Now, that, uh, not happy now that extra is needed. Were they doing Legionella testing when they were sold on the no other biocides? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I know. I know. Sometimes it's a tough situation, and you can't go back and change what was right. promised in the past. But you, know, you have to be honest with the customer and right. uh, say that a, a, a reassessment of the MB treatment program is is needed. Right. One thing I would maybe look at, Joel, is um, looking to see if you could get in some stainless coupons and show the biofilm growth, um, and then from that also looking at the possibility of doing some type of an RPD study or relative population density study where you could look to see which biofilm, I mean, which biocide might be an effective use uh, to get in there and, and penetrate a biofilm if you have it. Um, and by that, we could then come back and say, look, understanding that this was done in the past, um, it's, it's pretty apparent that your numbers are continuing to increase and that because of that, we are pretty certain that the only way to get around it would either to go in there and do some kind of a chemical burn, and they're not going to go for that. So really, it's much safer to go with a biopenetrant, which is a surfactant, and at least open up that biofilm to allow us to kill it with the, with the sodium hypochlorite. So it might not even be another biocide, but it would be the biopenetrant, right, as a dispersant. I think that's how I would approach it because a biopenetrant is just a surfactant. It's not going to be a biocide per se. Under one CFU, yeah. Right, undetectable. That's uh, interesting that we promised that. But, you know, and again, I, I believe that if you test for Legionella in most instances, you're going to find it. So. It's a matter about doing our due diligence at the biopenetrant, right? The biopenetrant that you want to look at, it is a um, non-foaming biopenetrant that already has the anti-foam in it, and it can be added in two different ways, either at a slug uh, where you would add it from time to time in the order of 20, 15 to 25 parts per million as product based on system volume, or you can add it continuously at a low dose of somewhere about 5 to 10 ppm, right? So, and then again, peroxide is more cost-effective is what they're saying, I guess, for the boilouts to clean systems. But peroxide can be messy, can be foaming. Yeah, you, you, have, you have to be careful when you're mixing caustic and peroxide together. Right. But the, um, you know, the peroxide is an oxidizer, and it um, causes some foaminess. Uh, mm -hmm. Within the the biofilm as well, um, so we have uh, we have some examples from Europe where they had very very thick biofilm, and um, they resorted to a caustic cleanout. And what you actually what they actually saw with the three B is it essentially blinded the three B. There was so much foam and bubbling and things happening, but then once they got past that phase, which I think took a couple of days. Um, then they saw a nice clean surface. So yep. again, the 3B can be really utilized to look at the efficacy of, of cleaning and treatment programs as well. 
Right. And then, Mike, when they did the caustic boil, they bought the psychers on the tower down, correct? So yeah. They... Yeah. I think you do, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to. Well, you get, yeah, you get... If you need more information on ClearPoint and the tools provided, please reach out to the Cooling Water Applications team or marketing. Thank you for attending the Cooling Water Podcast. Be sure to visit the IWT Technical Training Resources site if you have any questions and need further information.